Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening, where we not only continue our reflections into the book of Revelation, but really wrap up our reflections and teaching on the book of Revelation. Uh, This is episode 57, and this will be our last episode as we are now in wrap-up mode. We have been at this for, oh, four and a half, five months. I think we started our study on August 29th of last year, and while our our study has been delayed from time to time because of a sickness or maybe I had a talk, we have been able to plow through it (laughs) four and a half, five months later, and here we are. Uh, wrapping up our study and and teaching on the book of Revelation. It really has been an honor to to journey with you verse by verse with this most exciting book, the book of Revelation. And what I thought we could do this evening uh, by way of wrap-up is A, answer a question, and B, get into something that Michael Barber does, and that is really take a look back into all of sacred scripture so as to appreciate the book of Revelation as the last book in the Bible in a more holistic way. I I really do think Michael Barber does a good job, and so we'll reflect with him a little bit. And this will be some subject matter that you have probably heard before, because I have hit a more topical view on salvation history uh, before, but we will do this within the context of Revelation. Now, all of that being said, uh, that question, I was asked uh, out from our last program, in your opinion, what is the most important virtue in the light of the book of Revelation? And I thought that to be really an important question. What is the one virtue that is the most important of all virtues in the light of the book of Revelation, in the light of what we have been talking about, huh? Well, I would like to really pick up where we left off just yesterday evening in responding to that question, because I think the answer to that question is, to some of you, this will come to no surprise, the virtue of humility. What were we talking about yesterday evening? but the importance of being humble before our own sin. We have this tendency to constantly point the finger at what others are not doing or what they are doing, and how so often the very flaw that we are pointing out in the other person is the very thing we fail in. (laughs) Is that not the essence of our Lord's message that comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 1 to 5, when he says, do not judge, do not condemn the heart, Now, is he saying never to critique? He's not saying that. In point of fact, in verse 4, what does he say? Take the plank out of your own eye so then that you will see what you need to see. He's actually calling us to make the judgment, but at the same time reminding us that you cannot judge what you need to judge if you have not first taken the plank out of your own eye. And if you translate the Greek there, I think it's actually bolder, (laughs) okay? A very large thing that obstructs your view. So, humility is the virtue of the hour, because in the light of this virtue, you're constantly examining yourself. You're constantly taking the plank out of your own eye. And then, yeah, you'll be able to see what you need to see. But so often, pride gets in the way. 
the very thing that you are so critical of is the very thing that you yourself are failing in. And the point we made last night that really was a quintessential point for us is that the very thing you are pointing out, all while it be true, is the truth that in turn is judging you. You see, that's why we need to be humble. Okay, with that, I want to turn a little bit to Donald DeMarco, a figure you have heard me pull from before. He's an excellent writer on virtue, and he has some, I think, important pieces on the virtue of humility. And he says this, given the finite condition of man and his checkered history, one might think that humility, a human virtue of such evident appropriateness, would be easy to appropriate. It should be the first lesson we learn from self-reflection. Nonetheless, despite how well-tailored humility is to suit men, its correlative vice, pride, is what they are more likely to display. Rather than bow down to reality and accept themselves as they are, men are far more likely to cherish illusions and pretend to be what they are not. Let me read that line again. Rather than bow down to reality and accept themselves as they are, men are far more likely to cherish illusions and pretend to be what they are not. As one pundit remarked, many would be scantily clad if clothed in their humility. So my friends, the humble person makes a realistic assessment of who he is and puts that unillusioned judgment into practice. He does not judge himself to be smaller or larger than he really is. And in so doing, he avoids what? Despair, as well as pride, we could say. Consequently, what does the humble person enjoy? But freedom. Freedom to be who he is. You see, my friends, the humble person is not troubled by accidentals, such as reputation, self-interest, or even failure. The humble person takes joy in the importance or excellence of what is done rather than in the incidental fact that he happened to be the one who did it. That is a great mark of the humble person. As for illusions, which so often consume huge amounts of time and energy if we're going to be honest with ourselves, the humble person, he has none to defend. How have we spoken to this before? The humble person does not have a false self to protect. The humble person is not troubled by feeling obliged to defend an imaginary self to people who do not know who he really is. Nor does the humble person expect others to be who they are not. Another important aspect of the virtue of humility, huh? The humble person has no concern for trading in what is not real. The humble person is not a, a candidate for being victimized by self-pity, and he is certainly not likely to be saddened by not being who he cannot be. Donald DeMarco quotes here the great mathematician and physicist Albert Einstein. Now, he once confessed that he was so troubled by all the adulation he would receive, how he felt it was grossly disproportionate to his own more humble and realistic estimate of himself. This is what he had to say. There are plenty of the well-endowed, thank God. I like that. There are plenty of the well-endowed, thank God. He goes on to say, 
it strikes me as unfair and even in bad taste to select a few of them for boundless admiration, attributing superhuman powers of mind and character to them. This has been my fate. And the contrast between the popular estimate of my powers and achievements and the reality is simply, get this, grotesque. Albert Einstein. I just love that. Especially that last line, this has been my fate. And the contrast between the popular estimate of my powers and achievements and the reality is simply grotesque. A philosopher who understood the fundamental importance of humility in the broad scheme of things was once asked what the great God was doing. His reply, his whole employment is to lift up the humble and cast down the pride. Why? Because humility is fruitful, my friends, and pride self-destructive. Such an employment, in, in the words of this great philosopher, would be perfectly consistent with God's love for his creatures. The widely popular English theologian and apologist Cardinal Newman once explained that humility is one of the most difficult of virtues both to attain and ascertain. It lies close upon the heart itself, and its tests are exceedingly delicate and subtle. Mm, powerful stuff. Among the great philosophers, certainly Socrates is probably best associated with the virtue of humility, because he knew he did not possess wisdom, although he was constantly in pursuit of it. His lifelong search was for what? A master teacher. His humility proved to probably be his greatest asset inasmuch as it freed him from that countervice to humility, pride. Socrates saw the human condition with exceptional clarity, so much so that he earned the distinction of being the father of moral philosophy. He sought wisdom, capital W. All genuine appreciation of things requires seeing them against, in the words of Donald DeMarco, a boundary of non-existence. What does he mean by that? Well, from the perspective of non-being, all light seems lightning. Every sensation becomes sensational. And each phenomenon appears to be what it should be. Phenomenal. The attitude of humility, because it expects nothing, is ready and disposed to appreciate everything. The person who empties himself is best prepared to fill himself with the wonders of the universe. This is the pearl of wisdom to the first beatitude. Huh? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who have emptied themselves so much that now they can be filled with the wonders of the universe. Now they can be filled with the wisdom of God. Now they can be filled with the creative genius that is the mind and heart of God. G.K. Chesterton once said, It is one of the million wild jests of truth that we know nothing until we know nothing. <laughs> what is he talking about there? Well, what did we just say? Once we understand that we are called to long for God the same way our lungs long for air, we have begun to understand. Amen to that. Donald DeMarco turns his attention here to St. Augustine. 
and reminds us that uh, (laughs) St. Augustine maintained that humility is the first, second, and third most important factor in all of religion. It is in the judgment of St. Augustine, of course, the foundation of all virtues. Consequently, there can be no virtue in the soul in which humility is lacking, only the appearance of virtue. This is why we say the virtue of humility is the fountainhead of all virtues. There's a great story that comes to us from St. Macarius. When St. Macarius once returned to his cell, he met the devil who tried to cut him in half with a sickle. The devil failed in repeated attempts because when he drew near the saint, he lost his energy. Then full of anger, he said, I suffer great violence from you, Macarius, because though I greatly desire to harm you, I cannot. I do all that you do and more. You fast once in a while, I never eat. You sleep little, I never close my eyes. You are chaste, and so am I. And one thing only do you surpass me. And what is this thing? asked Macarius. He answered, It is your great humility. And with that, the devil disappeared. It is your great humility. And with that, the devil disappeared. There was another mystical encounter between an abbot and the devil. And he was describing what he saw. And as he was describing the devil, he said he had no knees. He had no knees. My dear friends, he has no knees because he cannot go on bended knee. Which brings us back to the first beatitude, because the poor in spirit are the anawim of God. The Hebrew word anawim simply translates, my friends, as bent over or on bended knee. Satan is not poor in spirit, you see. Again, humility is the mother of many virtues, because from it, knowledge, reality, honesty, strength, dedication are born. The poet Thomas More once wrote, Humility, that low, sweet root from which all heavenly virtues shoot. Mm. Amen. Amen. Okay, with that, (laughs) let us turn our attention to a reflection that has us looking at the book of Revelation within the context of salvation history. As we have seen, the book of Revelation teaches us many things, but one thing above all others. It wants us to see that the true nature of the church as a kingdom of priests a family of life-giving lovers. And in this, the book brings us into the mystery of God himself, that we are baptized as priests, prophets, and kings, baptized into God's very life. This was God's goal from all eternity. In fact, the book of Revelation comes last. Why? Because it serves as the climax for the whole Bible. It serves as the climax for all of salvation history. This is the context from which we have been working, that this is the last book that has us better understanding not only salvation history, but again, our role in the mystery of salvation. Through it all, we have been made to see how God acts as a father, teaching us how to love him. So salvation history works as a certain 
pedagogy. Because, my friends, for God's dealings with man, they represent nothing less than his raising us as what? Children of God, his children. What is that great passage that comes to us from Romans 8, 15? We have not received the spirit of fear in which we fall back into slavery, but the spirit of adoption in which we cry, what? Abba, Father. And for all of you parents out there, do we not discover that being parents is about a little discipline, a little patience, huh? and a whole lot of love? This is how we are to understand our relationship with God the Father. What's that great line that comes to us from Superman as he's looking down on his son? It is in becoming a father that I now understand what it means to be a son. For all of us who are parents, could we not say the same in relationship to our own relationship with God the Father? Could we not say that same thing? How many lessons have we learned as parents that have helped us better understand how to not only relate with God, but better serve God? better love God. And how about that God, that God who had a plan from the beginning? What is the first book in the Bible but Genesis? In the Hebrew, a word that means in the beginning. There God creates man for covenant relationship with him. God desires to be our father. And Adam is called to realize this by loving God more than his own life. And what have we discussed? He fails. He broke his covenant relationship with God. Later, Abraham comes along and begins man's long trip back to the Father, back to his homeland, huh? <laughs> he learns self-giving love by obediently taking his son Isaac to where but Mount Moriah to offer him as a sacrifice. This, my friends, is true life-giving love. Since by offering his beloved son, Abraham offered the love of his life. Certainly, we know when we read the story of Abraham and Isaac that Abraham would have much rather sacrificed himself. But because of his obedience, Abraham's descendants are blessed. That was the promise of the great covenant that comes to us from Abraham. God promises that all nations will be blessed. Abraham's son, Isaac, has a son. And what is his name? But Jacob, whose 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. And through this nation, God will bless all people. Unfortunately, there was a snag in the plan, huh? <laughs> After entering into a covenant with God on Mount Sinai, Israel sins by doing what? What was Israel's greatest sin? But worshiping the golden calf. What have we said about improper worship over the past 56 episodes? This is episode number 57. What have we said <laughs> about worshiping the idol? Certainly, one conclusion we can draw is that Israel just wasn't quite ready to evangelize the nations. They themselves needed to be rehabilitated before they can reconcile the nations. And as a result, God gives Israel a lower law contained in the Levitical Law Code and later in the book of Deuteronomy. I made note yesterday that Moses was the lawgiver and that Deuteronomy was the second law. This second law was understood as what? But the lower law. Why does God command animal sacrifice? 
God tells Israel to sacrifice bulls and calves because that is what they were worshiping. Remember, it was a golden calf. God is like a father teaching his children. You're really sorry for worshiping a calf instead of me? Well, show me. Prove it. Give me the calf. And because of this, what does St. Paul call the law? A custodian, huh? A custodian, a child's tutor. Now, this wasn't the best law. Ezekiel even says that the Deuteronomic covenant was a law that was not good. What do we read in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 25? I gave them statutes that were not good and ordinances by which they could not have life. These laws were simply meant to rehabilitate Israel so they would be strong enough to evangelize the nations. What do we mean by strong enough? How difficult could it be to evangelize the nations? Well, at the very least, we could say more difficult than Israel ever realized. God's children go out to the nations, but instead of changing them, what do they do? They start worshiping the other nations' gods. Does that sound familiar? For those of you listening in the United States, if you are so proud to be an American, let your pride be rooted in all that is right in the Constitution and not what is wrong with everything that the culture of death breathes. Let our pride be rooted in truth, not lies. So, what does God do with the Israelites? Well, in the words of Michael Barber, and I love this, he quarantines them. <laughs> he has to be really strict. He has to make sure that they learn not to be influenced by the nations as they were. Therefore, God gives them these laws to keep them from imitating the nations, imitating their false worship. What does Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 11 say? They can even wear mixed fibers because that is what the nations do. Now, for many of us, we might think to ourselves, this is crazy. This is nonsense. No, he's really a good father, <laughs> right? I mean, friends aren't always bad, but if the neighbor's kids start having a bad influence on your children, then your children ought not to play with them, right? So too with God. He works with his children to lead them in right paths. Now, where does this story take us? This story of salvation history. But does it not take us to David? Does not God start reaching out again through Israel to the nations with David? In many ways, David fulfills the law of Deuteronomy, especially in achieving rest from God's enemies and preparing the way for building a what? A temple. A temple. When David's son, Solomon, begins to reign, the temple is built, and the nations start streaming to Jerusalem to learn from other nations? No, from David. Unfortunately, we know that was short-lived. With a few notable exceptions, the Davidic kings turned from God and desired to have an earthly kingdom like all the other nations. Instead of setting their minds on spreading God's covenant, they seek to increase their earthly wealth and power. Israel was therefore taken off into exile, and only the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin returned. A point we have made during our treatment on the book of Revelation was what? 
but Solomon's failure and his abuse of wisdom and how this was a sign of the beast. So finally, Jesus comes and restores what? But the kingdom of God. And in so doing, establishes this new kingdom of God as this new universal covenant from which he calls each and every one of us to share in, to be baptized into his very life and love and ultimately receive him in his flesh and blood in the Eucharist. And in these great signs of the new covenant, the signs of baptism in the Eucharist, we now belong to the one universal covenant, the Catholicae covenant, a covenant which is celebrated each and every day in the Mass. We really highlighted yesterday evening the importance of that great amen and how it is a liturgical utterance. A so be it, a so it is. Truly, truly, this is what I believe, that Jesus is present, body and flesh, soul and divinity in the Eucharist. And he is, my friends, because he seeks to be in the most intimate relationship with us. We could simplify our study on the book of Revelation by saying that it is a book about relationship. I am yours, and you are mine. And yes, his message to all of us is, receive me, poor in spirit, with a humble heart. Amen? Amen. And with that, as I'm looking up at the clock, we are running out of time. So just let me extend a very warm thank you out to all of you for joining me on this uh, study on the book of Revelation. What a joy and what a ride it has been to study this beautiful and yet so mysterious text. I really do hope that you have been enriched by it. And before I wrap up with a word of prayer, I just want to continue to extend the invitation to all of you faithful listeners to continue to send me your suggestions on subject matter you want me to treat, if it's a particular theme or a particular book, if there's some aspect of history you want me to spend more time with, please send your uh, suggestions to me. You can send those to me at jholljmj at yahoo.com, or you can go to my website at joholcraft.org. Again, that's spelled J-O-E-H-O-L-L-C-R-A-F-T.org. Just hit the contact link button there and send your suggestion on its way. I will make the executive decision on what I'm going to do this weekend, so tune in on Monday, and you'll know where we are headed. No matter where the Spirit leads us, I'm excited to go down that path. All right, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.